Hello and welcome back to Reckoning Higher Ed, a podcast dedicated to investigating and understanding the issues facing higher education today. My name is Jeff Giovanni, and I am the host. Before we get too far into today's episode, I wanted to introduce to you the types of shows that we'll generally be doing. First, we'll be doing uh, types of interviews or conversations where we bring a, a one or more guests in to talk about a particular subset of topics. Typically, the guests or interviewees will have a particular expertise as it relates to higher education, and we'll discuss the issues as it relates to that area of expertise, some of the uh, issues surrounding higher ed from their perspective, the trends they might see, some of the impacts, how things are changing, as well as the future of delivery and and things of that sort. Second will be current issues, where we'll take an issue that is occurring more or less in real time, and, um, and we'll investigate that issue from a number of perspectives. Typically, this type of episode won't have a guest. It'll just be me talking and working through this issue using a number of sources. The third will be a type of question and answer. So as I receive uh, questions from listeners, and you can email those to Jeff, J-E-F-F, at reckoninghighered.com. Uh, and feel free to send me those. And as uh, those questions build up and form sort of a somat- thematic sets of questions, uh, I'll take those and, and discuss through those and answer those from various perspectives of mine, not necessarily with a guest, but taking on some background and, and providing you some context and my thoughts on those questions. So please, please feel free to send me your thoughts and questions and I'll bring those to the table. Finally is number four, and this is, uh, as I've been thinking about the type of listener uh, for this podcast. So generally speaking, this podcast is for anyone interested in higher education and understanding higher education and the trends facing those. Naturally, this would mean people who are largely familiar with higher education, such as current faculty slash professors, administrators from universities, other staff. But uh, I, I don't want to limit it to those. And so uh, folks who may have a relationship with higher ed, meaning like, oh, maybe my kids are going to college in a couple of years, and I just want to understand how this works. Uh, so the, the, this fourth one is dedicated to that type of listener who may not know exactly how higher ed works, but kind of wants to know. And that way, that they'll be titled as such as College 101. College 101 will assume little knowledge of a particular topic, and we'll, we'll take a topic and go through it, such as uh, what does it mean to be a professor? What are the different ranks of professor in a university? What is this thing they call tenure? Uh, how does the university work? What are the administrative structures? What is a public school versus a private school? And, and things of that sort. And so in that way, um, you can you can select if you want because any episode that is this college 101 will be designated as such in the title and that way you can s- subselect from within those sometimes such as today there'll be a little bit of a hybrid so this this was quite frankly an episode I was not planning on and certainly not planning on so soon except I came across some news that was uh, very striking to me. So I thought I'd mix a little bit of College 101 with uh, current issues. So today we're going to talk about tenure and the tenure system. And let me be clear, you will hear me say in future episodes uh, about 
the quote, the question is tenure going away question. And that has been something that I've heard talked about since I've started in the academic setting. And you'll hear me say that not in and of itself, that tenure is not going to be going away. They won't strip, meaning they, states, universities, whatever, will not strip people of their tenure just to get rid of the tenure system. Rather, they will probably displace more and more tenured faculty with non-tenured faculty status, and thus the tenured faculty become an increasing minority in the academic campus. While that statement remains true, recent news is rather troubling, and in part, I might stand be stand corrected. So I wanted to talk about that today. So why might I be stand corrected? Well, let's take a look at some recent news. From the Kansas Reflector, January 20th, 2021. Kansas, the title of this article, Kansas Board of Regents endorsed policy to speed university staff tenured faculty dismissals Steps follow financial damage from COVID-19 and governor's budgets. Essentially, what has happened uh, that was discussed in this article is that the Kansas Board of Regents, this is the statewide governing board for the public universities, universally endorsed a two-year policy. So it was meant to be temporary from 2021 through the end of 2022, eliminating the need to establish what is called financial exigency in order to eliminate a position that is filled by a person who has tenure. Financial exigency is a lot like a state declaring a state of emergency. It's a formal state that has a, a certain process associated with it and is can only be invoked in extraordinary financial duress of the university. And at that point, along with the deletion of the program, can also result in the elimination of tenured faculty members. This new... Um, policy that the Kansas Board of Regents endorsed would eliminate that need and therefore that uh, removes any protections that tenure offers faculty, basically making them at will. Now, this is a huge, huge change. But before we get too far into this, let's discuss tenure, what it is, and how we got here, and then we'll come back to this and uh, talk about some of the implications. So let's talk about tenure. What is it? Why do we have it? Where did it come from? Is it going to go away? And should it go away? And that last one, obviously, is a harder question. So tenure is, was largely developed uh, in the last hundred years by an association, or at least this association um, codified the language and the principles around tenure. And this is the American Association of University Professors, uh, an organization that was founded in 1915 and also happens to be the union uh, for many universities, certainly not all, that are unionized. I don't know offhand how many universities are unionized, but those that are, most of them are with the AAUP, as they're called. And they define tenure um, as, quote, an indefinite appointment that can be terminated only for cause or under extraordinary circumstances such as financial exigency and program discontinuation, unquote. So that means uh, that your job is generally protected unless you do something very awry, you know, uh, you're doing illegal activities, uh, or 
you know, somehow are violating university principles generally. So, so why do we have tenure and exactly what is that protecting us from? Well, let's talk about research, for example. And it's, it's really broader than research, but research is one of the primary principles that is covered by tenure. Uh, stem cell research is an interesting topic. Stem cell research um, seems fairly straightforward to many as a scientific endeavor to find uh, you know, uh, therapies and uh, cures even for neurological dis- disease or cancer and, and many others. However, depending on your belief system and background, it is considered or can be considered very controversial in certain circles, of course, which can potentially lead, depending on your environment, to intimidation, uh, disciplinary action, or job loss, or anything that might be generally uh, known as an infringement of your academic freedom due to the controversial nature of, or what is perceived as a controversial nature of the researcher's agenda. And tenure is, is designed to safeguard against that by the termination can only be done for cause or under these uh, highly extraordinary situations. But it also protects uh, topics that are discussed in the classroom that are related to the topic of the class, of course, but can be also controversial in nature and therefore protecting that faculty member from these types of uh, actions, uh, whether it be dis- discipline or dismissal, etc. Again, you know, where did this come from or how did it get here? And we can, we'll talk a little more about the mechanics. Uh, again, it's, a, it's over 100 years old. Um, AAUP, this is the, again, American Association of University Professors, who is broadly credited for pushing this agenda and establishing thoughtful guidelines for these te- for tenure, including the mechanics of it in many cases. And they argue that, again, it's both uh, for, uh, that serves the individual research Visa the protection of, of academic freedom, but also um, the, the teaching side and what topics are, are discussed in class. This all started in 1915 with the Committee on Academic Freedom and Academic Tenure of the AAUP um, made a statement and in the 1950 Declaration of Principles. And that proceeded, and we won't go into the nitty-gritty of that because what is the most often cited and still widely used set of principles came from the AUP in their 1940 Statement of Principles on Academic Freedom and Tenure. And it covers the principles, but also the mechanics of how it should be implemented. One, it defines tenure as a means to a certain end, quote. Specifically, and this is, I'm still quoting here, one, freedom of teaching and research and extramural activities, and two, a sufficient degree of economic security to make the profession attractive to men and women of ability. Freedom and economic security, hence tenure, are indispensable to the success of an institution in filling its obligations to its student and to society. What they argue is that this is not just a benefit to the person, but also society, because with the freedom to do uh, research without threat of blowback through the threat of their job and dismissal or, or, or disciplinary action, that the research, which generally is how society is benefited and the knowledge base of societies increased, will ultimately come back to society. So academic freedom, I brought this up. And what is that? You know, this, this, this idea of academic freedom and how tenure protects your academic freedom. Well, it, yeah, there's, there's sort of the intuitive 
Well, academic freedom is your ability to operate freely in the academic environment. What does that mean exactly? Well, the AAUP in this 1940 statement def described academic freedom in three particular ways. One, that you have freedom in research and publication of that research. So it's, it's the research activity, the agenda you're setting. And when you're writing up those results in some form of, of dissemination. So when researchers, uh, you know, do their studies or however uh, they do that research and that varies widely across disciplines, you know, whether you're, you're in a lab with uh, chemicals and you're, you know, somehow making new catalysts if you're in chemical engineering or if you're in psychology and you're doing behavioral studies with human subjects or you're uh, an anatomist or physiologist doing studies with uh, potentially animals or tissue samples, etc. At some level, you're collecting data. And the, the appropriate form of dissemination is through what we call peer-reviewed journals. These are, these are journals that uh, they're publications and you write your report. And when they say peer review, you, you, you send this in, say, hey, I, I have this study, I have these results and they're, they're good and society will be benefited by those. They assign professionals, uh, your essentially peers, people who are experts in your area to read it and say, yes, does this meet mustard? They will review and are your methods sound? Are your conclusions accurate? Is everything copacetic? And if they find that to be the case through this can fairly extended review process that I've seen take, you know, usually you're hoping for a couple months, but it, I've seen it take uh, over a year, sometimes a year and a half to get something, a decision on, on a paper. And then it gets published. So that's what they're referring to when they say freedom and research and publication. That's, that's the dissemination of the work. How is this body of knowledge recorded? Well, it's largely recorded in peer review journals. So that's number one. That's the, the first way the AEUP defines academic freedom. Number two, teaching and the ability to freely discuss their subject. That's, I think, their words. Um, basically, that you have the ability, when you're in a classroom and you're discussing your subject, that you can talk about the what might be prickly areas, things that aren't either universally agreed on or could be perceived as uncomfortable or even potentially offensive by some people. But that is protected because you're investigating a particular subject. Now, there are limitations on this. For example, if you're working at a religious-based university, um, they, they acknowledge that you your ability to speak about certain things might be limited, but that those, those limitations should be stated up front and in writing. And the third uh, area they define academic freedom is that and it's this is more of a statement of citizenship that they're based they basically say you know this is also 1940 so this is kind of a, a you know old school way of, of writing uh, I'm not quoting directly but they're essentially saying that faculty are, are are experts in a certain area and they have great knowledge in a very specific domain and because of that great knowledge they have a lot to offer but because of that as well they also have a great responsibility. Uh, and, and you need to be careful on how you speak and what you say and, and essentially stay in your lane. You, you need to speak in your area of expertise. Just because you're an expert in the certain field does not mean you are universally and can speak on things all around and expect that academic freedom to be covered. You're, you're, the academic freedom is supposed to be designed or covering you in your area of expertise. But also they note that when, when the faculty member does speak, it is for themselves and they're not 
covering or speaking for or on behalf of the university. So that's, that's what um, tenure is designed to do, is to protect your academic freedom. So, so the academic freedom are those three areas, basically freedom and research and its publication, teaching and the ability to discuss the subject matter of the class in the classroom setting. And of course that you do this with knowing that you have a sense of responsibility. Those things are protected through the tenure status, which is this uh, inability to have your job eliminated except for cause or financial exigency of the university. This, this sort of uh, declaring a state of emergency on a financial level for this, your university. So how does this actually work? And it's funny because people generally don't know. They have a vague notion because, you know, a lot of school teachers get that get tenure. Um, and that's a whole nother story that I will not address. I'm not an expert in that area. I don't understand the tenure system in public school systems or if it or in private school systems. I'm talking about like grade school, secondary school, et cetera. Uh, but people have a vague notion that it somehow protects you in your job and that it's a very good status to have. But beyond that, people don't really get it. In fact, I, I remember getting an email when I re received tenure, and I got an email from, uh, I can't remember exactly who or where they worked specifically, but it said, congratulations on your tenure. And it said T-E-N-Y-E-A-R. And they said, I didn't realize you'd been working there for 10 years. And I hadn't. I'd only been working there for six <laughs> because that's the general time frame. And, and it really got me to think, I don't think people really get it. So, so basically how this works, and you know, here's our college 101, is that when you're, you're applying, you're applying to a position, a faculty position that is, quote, tenure track, meaning that when you're hired, you are eligible potentially to get tenure, or you are eligible. Whether you get it or not is another, another decision. You do not start your job generally with tenure, certainly not as a new faculty member, you know, right out of grad school or something, or right out of a postdoctoral experience. But you apply and you get a job offer that basically outlines in very particular terms what it takes to get tenure, or at least the, the timeline. And generally, you know, what, what is true for many, uh, maybe not universally, but, but is a very common way to do it, is it says you, you basically have five years. You, you, you work for five years. And during that five years, you're expected to do some really good teaching and, and demonstrate that and growth in teaching, be able to demonstrate that. You're supposed to conduct your research, set up your lab or whatever space or elements is required to do your research or, or creative activities because it's not always just research. Um, and do it, you know, and do it well. You're if in whatever that venue is, now I'm in the uh, health sciences, so... In my area, that means that you are conducting typically human uh, human subject studies. You are publishing those and getting those published, and you're working on getting grants, and in many cases should have shown success in getting some grants. And then after that five years, during your sixth year, you, you submit you know, what's called your dossier, which is all the evidence of those criteria that, that hey, I've done it all, here it is. And then a, a certain committee of your peers in your department review it all, and they, they give a yay or nay meaning you get tenure or you don't. And then it, the, the department head writes, or the chair, or the director, whatever they're called at that particular university, writes a letter alongside it. A college committee of faculty deliberate as well, and they either go along with the decision from the department or not. And then the dean, which is the head of the college, 
will uh, go uh, write a, a letter of support or their own letter, and then it goes up the line. And only on the approval of the highest levels, which usually means that there was approval at every level, at that point, you are granted tenure. And once that is granted, it typically typically isn't revoked. There are mechanisms for it being revoked. Um, and usually, again, it's for cause because uh, according to the AAUP, it was meant to be something that's in perpetuity. Now, the mechanics according to the, this 1940 statement of principles on academic freedom and tenure say this probation period should not exceed seven years. Now, and again, most cases, it, probation period's five years. And it is an all or nothing thing. So after that five years and, and your sixth year, again, you, you submit, and then that's where all the deliberation happens and everything. And then by the end of your sixth year, you find out whether, and this is literally the outcome, one, you have tenure in this, this uh, in a sense of very increased job security, or two, you're going to be let go. You get to work out what your last year, which would be your seventh year, uh, for, to help you find another job. But essentially, you're done. It's over. And, and it, there's no in between. I mean, you could be potentially, I mean, in some, certain cases, there's ways to get, you know, rehired in a non-tenure track position or something like that. But as far as that particular position goes, it's an all or nothing thing. You either get tenure or you don't, and you find another job. Um, and some of the mechanics now, they, and how to implement this, the AUP also describes in this, this 1940 document that is largely relied upon to set the standards of how this should be implemented, um, that, that even in this probationary period that your academic freedom should still be there. It's just because you're in your probation period doesn't mean you're, you should, uh, be under the potential pressure or feel any consequence of choosing a particular topic or avoid certain relevant issues in the classroom. And that faculty should be involved if there is a, a, charge of dismissal or a case of dismissal for cause that faculty should be able to weigh in and have you know some some levity in that situation and finally that this idea of financial exigency can't be just sort of invented that the university has to have some specific criteria to establish financial exigency and applies university-wide so so it has to you know in the, in the university policies you know if xyz happens then we can make this move, board of trustees votes, and then then we're in financial exigency. That has to basically has to be a bona fide situation and not just invented out of thin air in order to get rid of tenured faculty. So let's move back to Kansas and how the Board of Regents, which governs all the public universities in Kansas, decided to make a very daring move that goes completely against the tenets of tenure in order to essentially allow their public universities to eliminate tenured faculty at will uh, and without cause and without establishing or determining financial exigency. Well, let's back up to around the time of COVID. And when I say that, I mean around the time the, the country was shut down and uh, article from the Kansas News Service from April 20th, 2020. The title of this article is Kansas Universities Had Serious Budget Problems Before Coronavirus. Now they may have to let more staff go. So let's think about what was happening at that time. Basically, mid-March, everything was shutting down. Universities literally had days to move their courses from in-person 
venues, the ones that were, to fully online or what we would, in this case, would refer to as remote teaching, which is a, a huge move. Moreover, the vast majority of universities did the right thing and held the students harmless, reimbursed them for housing, food costs, tuition, or whatever uh, was appropriate in that particular situation. It was not uncommon that this cost universities $50 million between mid-March and the end of June or the end of their fiscal year, which was a huge hit to their budgets. The CARES Act, the Corona Aid Relief and Economic Security Act, which was a $2.2 million economic stimulus bill approved on March 27th, 2020, provided a, a substantial amount of money, $300 billion for individuals, $260 billion, and then later increased to almost, six, almost $670 billion to unemployment and the uh, payment protection plan, $500 billion for corporate loans, and about $340 million to states and local governments, from which uh, many, many millions were given to public universities, and typically that ranged, well, depending on the size of the university, but a large public university generally saw between 10 and $30 million to help out. Now, mind you, when you're lost $50 million in just that one quarter, you're still at a, a minimum a $20 million deficit, even if you got the, a $30 million amount. Mind you, now half of the money the university's got had to go directly to the students. So the university still lost a lot of money during this period. So any university that was struggling financially already, this was a double whammy. Not to mention the increased costs of throughout the summer of getting extra technologies, extra support, and the very high likelihood of losing enrollment for fall. And while generally speaking, public universities especially did fairly okay with enrollment, that was an average. So universities that were particularly struggling and didn't do so well, in other words, their enrollments went down, that was a double whammy. So May 21st, fast forward 20, uh, 2020, in the Lawrence Journal world, was looking at Kansas University estimating $120 million shortfall in coming fiscal year as a result of COVID-19 pandemic. That, that's the title of that article. Now that $120 million shortfall is 26% of their operating budget, which is a massive amount and very difficult to come back from. And that is a one time, not one time, but that isn't like a, uh, that happened all at once. It was not year over year where it was 5%, 5%, 5%. Uh, it was 26% all at once. And that was, again, that estimate. And so how did they respond? Well, the Kansas City, uh, KA, KSHB, Kansas City reported on July 10th, 2020, that almost 1,900, I think the actual number is 1,868 staff at Kansas State University, um, which is part of the Kansas system, were fur furloughed because of the budget cut of $37 million. And they were looking at terminations, eliminating positions, salary cuts, et cetera, et cetera. Now, mind you, this would only save less than $9 million, according to that report. Moving on to October 15th, 2020, Kansas City Business Journal. 147 University of Kansas employees accepted voluntary buyout. And Kansas University lost 665 students, and Medical Center lost 139 students. That's 18% down. So as you can see, um, the, the loss of students definitely impacts their bottom line. They were trying to shed off uh, faculty and staff. Um, to get them to retire early. Now, that usually involves a large payout. In this case, I think they were giving up to $100,000. Uh, basically, it was their salary up to 100000 whichever was lower. And so 
you know, the pressure, the pressure, the pressure, they were already in financial duress and you have COVID and these consequences that I'm, I'm detailing out for you. So then the news broke in the Kansas reflector, January 20th, 2021. And this is where we started the Kansas border regions. Then the news broke in the Kansas reflector, January 20th, 2021, the Kansas border regions or the BOR, the BOR approved a policy that would allow any of the public universities to dismiss tenured faculty without those two grand tenets of tenure, meaning they could do it without cause or without establishing financial exigency. And uh, this policy was designed to be a two-year policy, 2021 through 2022. Again, gives them the university's much greater facility to suspend, dismiss, or terminate employees, especially faculty members, uh, again, without having to go through the process of, de- of determining their, their sort of state of emergency, formerly called financial exigency. According to the Kansas Reflector in this article, the governor, Laura Kelly, had proposed a cut to higher education by $35 million last June and was now proposing another $27 million. Now, it's a little unclear exactly how this works, but... The process was outlined in the article, and I will quote here. Each participating university would submit to the Board of Regents for review the framework for implementing this policy. Individuals given notice of termination would have an avenue to appeal to their Office of Administrative Hearings. A hearing officer's decision would be final, and anyone reinstated would receive back pay, etc. And there would be deadlines and whatnot. This policy would not automatically trump contracts with university employees. The upside of this is that five of the six universities in Kansas, public universities, have resoundingly stated that they will not use this tool that was given to them. One did not, and that's the University of Kansas. As I reference some of these articles, I'll probably say Kansas University because KU are the initials. Uh, So just please uh, allow me that the interchangeability of University of Kansas and Kansas University. Uh, According to Flatland, on February 3rd, 2021, Kansas University faculty students go on an offense at Allen Fieldhouse against administration's budget strategy. Protest focuses on faculty dismissal policy, graduate student wages. That's the title of the the article. They're looking, because they're looking at a total shortfall for 2022, now they estimated 120 million, I said earlier. Well, now for 2022, they were estimating 75 million or just under 75 million. Uh, Again, as is an estimate, which can go up or down. And the chancellor of the university was saying, well, we could eliminate, we, we, this will, we'll have to eliminate programs, departments, reduce services, basically just do lots of crazy things to reduce our pay or our payout. Now the provost, Barbara Bichelmeyer was quoted saying, I want to be absolutely frank and honest with you all. I think she was speaking to the university community as provost. I'm not yet inclined to say we will need the tool they provided and I am ready to do the work necessary to avoid it but I'm also not yet able to say we won't need the tool. So this is actually something they've accepted as a potential reality and they have not resoundingly rejected. Thus, one, I think the first case that has, a, that has gone fully through to eliminate or reduce tenure that is not the sort of bleeding out. I also want to say that in the Lawrence Journal World, January 26, 2021, uh, they all—they were the ones that reported that uh, Kansas University was the only 
public university in Kansas that would have been affected by this that didn't resoundly reject the policy saying that they would not implement it. Now the other five have. So what does this mean for tenure and the tenure system? Is it going away? Well, there is absolutely no doubt that it's being reduced. According to the AAUP, tenured faculty represent 21% of the academic community. Now, historically, most faculty were tenure track, tenured were on the tenure track. And as far as I can tell, there are three trends that I've observed or researched and seen through that research. The first is something you'll hear me talk about in future episodes, and that is the move to hiring non-tenure track individuals in parallel lines to their ten tenure track counterparts. I've seen this for about the last 10, 15 years, and it's been proliferating. The idea is that you develop a, a, a faculty line where the person can be hired and promoted in much the same way as a tenure track faculty member, but never is eligible for tenure. These individuals largely work in instruction, so they're, they're not, they don't have a research agenda per se. They may have some small involvement in research, but they're not expected to have their own agenda in research. Uh, similarly, they could work in a clinical setting. Um, so for some of the clinical health professions or med school or nursing, uh, they may be uh, working in, in the field and taking students out into various you know uh, environments like nursing, will take them to the hospital and they'll supervise their own nurses while they're actually doing nursing work and, and in charge of instruction in that way in a clinical supervision setting. According to AUP, this would also be something they would want to have covered this, this idea of instruction so that, that what they discuss in any potential controversial areas be protected under the tenets of academic freedom. But this isn't actually what's playing out. What's playing out are that these parallel lines have the look and feel of a tenure track, but they have much higher teaching expectations because of the reduced research expectation and are not tenurable. The second trend, as I see it, is something that's that's been coming up and it, has, and it rises over and over again. And this is the idea of post-tenure review. Historically, once someone gets tenure, they have tenure. And the way jobs are, are often defined, and this varies from institution to institution, but the historical norm, if you will, for especially for a, a high research or the highest research-involved university, is that, you know, roughly 40 or 50% of your job is supposed to be research and roughly 40, 50% teaching. And then there's that little bit left over for service and serving on committees and doing all that other stuff, advising students. And so uh, the teaching expectation for tenured, tenured, tenured and tenured track faculty is lower because they're supposed to be spending a, a good portion of their time, up to half their time uh, without external funding to, to do their research. However, what if you get tenure and you just stop doing your research and they can't fire you because you haven't broken any laws? They can have not established financial exigency and are eliminating your department, which be hugely a crazy move to get rid of one person. So these abuses, if you will, someone just decides to not be productive anymore as a tenured faculty member are highly problematic to the university because having research space is expensive and having you not teach uh, more courses is expensive and, and is problematic if you're not doing that research. So that's, that's some pros and cons, uh, 
And the, the, you know, that's the pro is it can help with unproductive faculty, but there is a risk. That risk is that it's a tool that can easily be misused. Um, if, uh, there's financial duress and they just, uh, they mean the administration just looks at faculty and just say, well, let's just, uh, there's a lot of pressure on the post tenure review. So, um, that can, you know, lead down the road, uh, where faculty might be actually let go for financial reasons rather than productivity reasons. An alternative to that, this post-tenure review, is this uh, varying teaching load, where if a faculty member is not productive, they're not necessarily given a post-tenure review, but the department chair on, through uh, the annual review can say, you know, look, you're just not cutting it. You know, okay, you had 50%, but this year you're only going to have 25% of research, and you're going to have to teach another course. And if you ramp it up, I'll, I'll give it back to you, you know, get a grant or whatever, put some more pubs out. And it, but if you continue on this road of not performing, then I'm just going to give you a full teaching load and you'll be pulling your weight again. And, and that is a way of, of at least managing that situation because otherwise it is a huge cost. And number three is, and, and this is what goes to what is potentially the door has been cracked through this Kansas situation is eliminating tenure altogether. Now, what Kansas is doing is saying, well, they're not necessarily eliminating tenure. They're just eliminating people who have tenure. Um, however, there are a couple of precedents not successful, I might add. And this is why the Kansas story is so poignant is because this is, in my understanding, the first successful thing that has been approved to occur to delete tenure, if you will. Now, there have been attempts, uh, probably more than I'm aware, but two that I'll point out and both have to do with tenure at the point of hire or even worse, retroactive. Um, a news outlet inside higher ed on January 13th, 2017, they reported two of these. The first is in the state of Missouri, there was a bill did not pass as far as I'm aware that would eliminate tenure for all new faculty hires starting in 2018. The other was that Iowa, the state of Iowa, was looking to, to end tenure for everyone, past, present, future, in any public school. And it doesn't end there. In fact, on January 26, 2021, the Gazette reported that Iowa, once again, for the third time in as many years, is put forwarding a bill to essentially remove the protections of tenure as they are currently understood. So there's definitely been attempts at removing tenure as as this acknowledgement or this protection of academic freedom. Um, again, these have not been successful. However, the Board of Regents policy was successful, is approved today. Moreover, one of the universities in Kansas has decided not to reject it and says, yeah, we may have to use it. We'd like not to, but we will. We will if we need to. So however you feel about tenure or don't feel about tenure, um, I'm, I'm trying not to put much opinion on the matter or my own feelings, but more discuss what it is as a system as part of the College 101, but also wrap it into this issue of the day, which is the Board of Regents in the state of Kansas approving a policy to allow all public universities in the state of Kansas to let go or dismiss tenured faculty without cause or without declaring a state of financial exigency. 
Thank you for joining me in this podcast, Reckoning Higher Ed, and the discussion of tenure, both in the College 101 and defining it, as well as wrapped into this issue regarding uh, tenure and the trend of tenure in higher education as to whether uh, it will remain a feature and a basic tenant of higher education, or if it's something that may be on the decline. If you have any thoughts or questions, please drop me a line at jeff at reckoninghighered.com. I'll catalog those and address those in due course. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. We'll be right back.